Welcome to Dig This, a podcast about using archaeology, heritage, and business to do some good in this world. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amanda. Join us in a guest or two as we reevaluate and decolonize our work, our relationships, and our values. We're recording from the unceded territory of the Shimshan Nation, the Kitsilis people in Terrace, BC and also recording from Bowser, BC. In the beautiful unceded territory of the Qualicum First Nation. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Jenny. Well, welcome back to your podcast, our podcast. Yeah, it's not my podcast. <laughs> our, ours. Our podcast um, in season two. Very exciting. How's your day going? Um, still going pretty well. No complaints. It's going to be great. I had a peak in the shitstorm. That's my inbox between recording and uh, it doesn't look too bad. <laughs> it's um, a moderate shitstorm. Yeah. Normally we set aside Wednesdays as no meeting days, mm. uh, like the one day of the week where we don't have meetings. Cause it seems like because of the pandemic and this world we now live in where we're on zoom, constantly it, it it can tend to get a little overwhelming with back-to-back meetings and then there's no time to get to your inbox it just fills up yeah and so in today's business tip corner we would say in your small consulting company have a one day a week that's no meeting day and then schedule all the meetings that you have no other time to put anywhere else on that day it <laughs> seems counterproductive but a little bit. That is what we do sometimes. Um, special important meetings like podcast recording. Mm-hmm. We tend to fit those in on Wednesdays because we have our calendar cleared. I'll let you introduce the guest this time. Sure. We are super happy to welcome Bill White, who is a podcaster, an archaeologist, an educator, and an author. Has a number of cool things going on in his world that I'm hoping we can touch base on today. And he is currently based out of Berkeley, California. Welcome, Bill. Hello. How's it going? Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. Delighted to have you. Where where are you joining us from today? Well, right now I'm um, visiting... Uh, my family and friends and doing a little bit of archaeology stuff in Boise, Idaho, which is uh, territorial ancestral land of the Shoshone people. But I live in the Bay Area, ancestral land of the Muwekma Oaloni people. So, you know, I think it's important as an archaeologist to acknowledge where we're at and where this heritage all begins and who are the rightful and uh, long-term um, stewards of the heritage and the sites and the lands that we live on. Absolutely. It's a really important piece that we think is just fundamental to kind of setting the right tone. And we we appreciate others recognizing that too. Yeah. I mean, I try my best. Sometimes it just seems like the land acknowledgement isn't enough. So it's if not. you've got any clues on the next, <laughs> the next way to go, right? I mean, I'm grateful that we have the acknowledgements and everything, but sometimes I feel like that's just like the beginning, the first page, the cover, right? The cover yeah. protector of the cover of the book. It's it's the low-hanging fruit. I tell my students that we talk to our team about that, that this is literally the least we can be doing. And it's just the beginning of, of the discussion. And um, we so appreciated you reaching out to us, our, our little podcast, and, and you've been podcasting for, for quite a while. And you reached out with some really well thought out, comprehensive points about what we're talking about, which really amounts to race, equity, 
uh, the history of archaeology, decolonization, and all these big, big topics. But what I really appreciated in how you reached out was these big topics you personalized and you spoke about them yourself as a Black archaeologist in the States. Yeah, I mean... That's definitely an interesting experience, huh? <laughs> yeah, and definitely not not one that we have any any relationship to. We are both of settler origin, white archaeologists, mm -hmm. and it's lovely to get other perspectives. We we need them. It's interesting that uh, you know <laughs> archaeology seems to be uh, maybe it's just because we're in it, but it seems to be a bit of a battleground for many of these social movements that are happening right now with regard to gender, racism, equity. Uh, access to land, access to resources. I, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about why you reached out to us, Bill, in the first Sure. Place. And I also want to touch on um, the universal experience for Black, Indigenous, people of color that white North Americans do not experience. And that includes us. And I want to talk about that as yeah. like the overlap between um, kind of, you know, we're in Canada, you're in the States, but I want to make that connection that, of that universal experience. But before we do that, Sure. I, wanted, I would love to know your origin story. Oh, well, you know, I came from Stardust Thousand. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. That <laughs> might, the one, might have been that's it. the one I wanted. <laughs> I, I've been watching Dune too much and obsessed. Oh, everyone I'm it. talking to. Dune yeah, I knew it. Talking to Dune. I read the books it. back in when I was a teenager. Yeah. And, uh, I have to return to them. I have yeah. To <laughs> yeah. And they're Maybe doing that you guys say that because I was so. just watching Dune too. It's hilarious. <laughs> What is going on? Well, you're watching it right now while we're recording the podcast. Like, <laughs> yeah. She's no, but I did. I did. I just ordered myself a new pair of motorcycle leggings, and they're awesome. Inspired by Dune. Inspired by Dune. Yeah. You're not, not going to believe this. I'm sitting here wearing motorcycle leggings. Because it's that cold, or just because you're driving that fast? Like, well, that's just the way Amanda need... and I are. We just need motorcycle leggings. Ah, ah. Part of our when you allowance. <laughs> When you drive the way you do, you really need protection on your legs. So I, I dried on. Are you wearing them? You're wearing them indoors, I presume, right? I'm wearing them right this minute. That's so awesome. I don't know if I've ever, you know, recorded podcasts with people that are ready to just literally ride out the door right now. This minute. I'm, I'm ready to hop in my compact Chevy and drive away. Well, heck, do what you got to do. I'll talk faster so you can get back to riding. Okay, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, uh, I'm from Boise originally. I just wanted to be, well, I wanted to be an astronaut or an archaeologist. And mm. uh, I was a super nerdy kid that thought that like, you know, book reports in third grade were the coolest thing. And like, I see none of that in my kids, thank God. I just, I wanted to be an astronaut and I wanted to be, or, or an my fallback career was archaeologist. And when I was like, 15 years old, I realized I was too tall to fit in a NASA spacesuit and I couldn't envision that there'd be SpaceX and, you know, all the other blue origin and stuff. So I promptly just quit all these math classes and just started to take history. Uh, and then, you know, there, there was like kind of support from my family. Like you want to be an archeologist? Does that mean you go to college? Okay. Then do that. Like if you go to college, then it's a thing. It's a real thing. If it doesn't involve college, it's not a real thing. So they were like, sure, son, go ahead and be an archaeologist, whatever that is. <laughs> sure, sure, son, go for it. And there wasn't that question, like, are you going to be able to make money? <laughs> what are you going to eat? Well, you well, you know, the, the thing that was sweet about my family is we were multi-generationally poor. So it was kind of like, 
there's pretty good chance this kid's going to be poor. <laughs> so I better teach him how to live poor rather than worrying about it, making a bunch of money. Right. Cause the worst thing would be to get someone's hopes up that they're going to make a bunch of money and then watch them end up being poor. The better thing is just to live life poor and recognize that's just kind of how it's been for the last like 90 years for our family. So they, they were like college, college means you can do something with your life that doesn't involve breaking yourself down, which interestingly, archaeology totally involves breaking yourself down. Uh, but they were, they were encouraging me to go to college. And then in, in high school, I ended up taking a bunch of business classes too. Like we had a kind of vocational thing that had some marketing classes. And so when I went to go to college, I looked for archaeology as the major. Oh, I also took my aptitude test and archaeology didn't come up as a career. And I told them I wanted to do that. And they go, well, you know, I think you scored, maybe you should be architect, like architects, a job on here. And I was kind of like, I don't know. I don't want to really be architect. I guess I'll be a marketing, you know, major and I'll go into business because my university obviously didn't have uh, archaeology as a degree in the United States. It's anthropology, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that archaeology was under anthropology. So I went to college and uh, I was a marketing major and my first class was like macroeconomics or something like that. One of these huge, like hundred and something person classes. And the professor talked about things that were just like, I know poor people and I know none of us consider any of the things that you're talking about and how we make decisions on what we buy. Like, it's all based on like, will it put food in my stomach? Will it put clothes on me? Can it give me shelter? Like, those are the decisions we're making. We're not worried about like supply chains and like wages and marketing and shit like that. So then I kind of started scratching my head. Like, I think I might've made a mistake with college. I think I'm going to go into the military. <laughs> and then I had an um, anthropology class right after that. And day one, they said, you know, physical anthropology is one of the four fields of anthropology and archaeology is one. And I was like, oh, oh, that's it. Like, that's, that's how you become an archaeologist. You learn anthropology. So I switched my major over and then I went through school and you know, I finished my bachelor's and I did a field school and like started applying for professor jobs with my BA because I didn't know there was CRM. No one had ever even mentioned it. So I was like applying to postdocs and all this other shit because I had zero guidance and getting, you know, fully yeah. shot down at every corner. No one told me about anything about archaeology. And I'd been out for about a year and I was working at Costco. One of my professors came through. And they said, you know, I thought you were going to be an archaeologist. Well, what are you doing here? And I go, I don't know how to be like, no one, will, I don't, where are the jobs? I don't know what to do. And they said, well, quit this job first. That's the first thing you got to do. Cause as long as you've got food in your stomach, you'll never try. And then the second thing is you need to start applying to cultural resource management. And I was like, what is that? Well, look it up on the internet. It's out there. And so then that's when I started to write resumes for CRM jobs. And, uh, you know, it's not easy. At the same time, I also started to apply for master's programs because I realized that a lot of jobs were saying that they needed people with master's. They were preferring people with master's and stuff like that. So I figured, ah, heck, I'll just get a master's. And, uh, you know, I started to get actual offers for permanent field tech positions uh, around the time that I got accepted to some grad programs. So I, I was, I told them honestly, you know, well, I'll be able to work through the summer, but then I'm going back for my master's. And they just said, you know, just get your master's degree and then call us afterwards. So I did that. I went to the university of Idaho and got my master's. It was, you know, it was a good program and totally awesome for the kind of person that I was, you know, I finished and then I started doing CRM for a long time. And then I had a family. My wife was like, you can either stop doing archeology span so that you don't go in the desert 
you know, every 20 days a month and leave me here with these kids alone. Or you can get a PhD and do one of the jobs that you stay in at the office and you're less likely to go out in the field. And in the state of Arizona, like, you know, it was the recession at the time. And so I was getting battered around and laid off and all that stuff. And I was looking at the companies and I'm like, who is the person they never lay off? Well, they never lay off the PIs and they never lay off the company owner and nobody ever lays off the state historic preservation officer. So I should try to be the state historic preservation officer. That's what I should really try to do because they'll never get laid off. They can get, you know, taken away from political appointment or I can start my own company or I can be the PI. Like those are the jobs that I should aim for. So I went and got my PhD and that was the job that I was aiming for. And then I, I got turned down by a lot of universities. They didn't, you know, you get rejected way more times than you even get talked to in academia. And then Cal gave me a, an interview and I ended up getting selected and getting a job offer. So then when I was telling the companies like, you know, yeah, you know, I got this offer from Cal to be an assistant professor. And I know you wanted me to be a principal investigator. And they're like, do the Cal job. <laughs> like, don't come work for us. Like, go do that. And if you don't make tenure, then call us back. <laughs> so that's how I ended up being a, a professor. So folks out there who are applying to professor jobs, I'll tell you this. I got turned down. I don't even know. I got one interview, one chance out of 10 applications I made for tenure track positions, including a lot of adjunct positions. I didn't get those. And I got turned down for a lot of community colleges and a lot of state colleges. And a lot of times they didn't even send me a friendly rejection email. They just ghosted me fully. But all of the CRM companies were interested. And it didn't matter. Virginia, Washington State, Arizona, California. When I wrote a resume to them with a PhD and 10 years of CRM experience, they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, we're really interested. So if you're a PhD out there, you're thinking about what to do, just know that PhDs are extremely rare in CRM and they are absolutely generic and ubiquitous in academia. And they will treat you that way in academia, but they're not going to treat you that way in CRM. I can tell you no one gives a shit that I have a PhD in CRM. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very different here. One of the challenges that we have here, and I and I don't know if this is an experience in CRM in the in the states. I worked in the states uh, for a few years with the Tribal Historic Preservation Office, uh, one of them in Arizona, but I didn't work as a consultant. I was down there doing research, and I wondered, like, do, does CRM have a particular role in kind of modernizing the the larger archaeological discipline? Is there an advantage there because it's applied, it's paid work? You're you're not necessarily having to produce these papers. You're not having to go through um, sometimes mind numbing exercises <laughs> that don't mm. that don't go anywhere. Sometimes, right? So, is yeah. there like a different role in CRM in, in Canada and particularly in BC? We have a it's there's a division between CRM archaeology and academic archaeology, and mm -hmm. both seem to feel that they have a different role to play mm -hmm. uh, in like modernizing the discipline and ultimately writing the balance and balancing the right, as Murray Sinclair says. And so, yeah. yeah, I wonder what you what are your thoughts on that? No, that totally exists here too, where you know a lot of uh, professors they look down on CRM work as sloppy, and you know a lot of uh, CRM folks think that all we're doing is just sitting there navel gazing and, you know, sitting around thinking about critical race theory all day rather than actually doing anything. And the reality is there's some of both, right? <laughs> like CRM is absolutely missing the point on being a kind of like service that provides to the public good. 
because there's absolute potential to create more historic preservation advocates just from simple CRM projects, like helping people know what's the history of their area, what archaeology companies have found. I mean, these there's tons of discoveries that are going on all around the United States and, you know, Canada, the whole world through CRM companies. But those don't always turn into something that ever goes into the public mind. That I mean, they never even mention it on the news, right? You find a village with like 85 Hohokam pit houses that spans like 700 years and tells us a whole bunch about like life in central Arizona. I mean, that'll get like a 400 paid technical report that goes to the state historic preservation office. It's not even on the news. Like it doesn't, no one even hears about it. In Arizona, they do tell the tribes about something like that. Like a, a huge village that spans like a lot of different time, but our, you know, surveys of finding rock piles of old agave terraces and, uh, you know, old field houses and stuff. A lot of times land management administering agency doesn't actually tell the tribes about every single thing they're finding, even when that's connected to their, you know, uh, ancestral lands. And the same thing goes with, you know, everyone, like people in towns don't actually know a lot of times about the history of those areas. So CRM, I feel like is always missing the boat on that. And, you know, the very first response that anyone who's in CRM will say is, our clients tell us that we can't talk about it. We can't tell anyone about what we're doing, right? And my response would be like, so once you've done the project, before the next project happens, tell people about it. Tell people about just the historical context of this part of town. Like what you know of these maps, what was this town like? And you have a website, otherwise you wouldn't have any business. Put it on the website. You don't have to tell them specifics about everything if you've got a non-disclosure clause in your contract. Then don't do that. Don't break the contract, but be a good citizen after the fact. That that's where they're missing. And then, you know, academia, probably look at like, you know, what kind of response you're getting from your research. Uh, and is it only archaeologists that ever say anything about your work? Or does anyone from the, the community or the rest of the world ever ask you about anything? Mm -hmm. Because if you're doing all this meticulous work and you're sitting there, you might actually, in fact, be doing navel gazing because no one knows what you're doing. Because once again, you haven't shared your work or it's not in a way that any citizen can understand. And therefore, you are kind of just like hiding in a lab and tootling away and doing a thing without anyone getting anything out of it, right? So archaeology in general, with the you know collaborative work that's going on and the public archaeology that's going on, those are the things that are actually making a difference in our countries. The advances and stuff that's being discovered in labs that then gets applied by CRM companies or by you know public projects, that, that actually has potential. But I feel like just the kind of structures, the way that it is, everybody's missing the boat. Uh, nobody's really innocent on that one. I mean, CRM, it's where the it's where the the money, the money is, right? Like in archaeology, it's not in a lot of other places. Most of the, you know, cash related to archaeology flows through yeah. through CRM. And is there any in, in your work, have you found any potential to funnel that yeah. that money towards descending communities, for example? Sure. There's, there's examples, you know, uh, that I know of, of course, I only know a little bit of what's going on, but there's good folks in academia and in CRM that are trying to do everything that they possibly can. And it's not just indigenous folks, right? So there's people who are trying their very best to be as inclusive of uh, native folks, not every company. I mean, I want to say that out loud, not every university is, is doing this kind of stuff. But, you know, when I was in Arizona, I worked for a company that was like many in the industry said like the, the evildoer because they'd work with all the mines and all the energy companies. Right. So, 
you know, we had contracts because we would work for copper mines, but they, they actively went, well, first of all, they didn't have to like put a listserv out there and try to hire native people in Arizona because they had native people that were their friends. Right. So they just had to call the, the tribal historic preservation office and ask who's available to work on the project. And those were the people that they hired, like first and foremost, if it was in those territories. Right. And those folks were folks that, you know, maybe they had gone to a little bit of college. Maybe they hadn't. Right. The company wasn't afraid of hiring people who didn't have a college degree to be an archaeologist. And so, you know, we routinely had native folks that were just working as archaeologists as should be right. Not chosen because they're native, not chosen because of anything special, but because they want to do archaeology. And the company hires people who want to do archaeology. They were paid the same rate as everybody else, worked on the project. They were just like everybody else. The thing that kept them from being permanent employees is that they live, you know, far from where the home office was. We don't always have projects near their home. So, like, you know, who wants to drive 170 miles every weekend, right? But when stuff was near there, they call their friends, right? And so that's the kind of, like, connection that is just when you're a good citizen and you're a true archaeologist and you have relationships with tribes and work in CRM, it, it's not like you're like looking for diversity or whatever. You're hiring your friends because you know they're good and because they can do the job, right? And so, so that, that's an example of just, you know, uh, doing that kind of work. Uh, when I was at Arizona, I used to work for the Bureau of Applied Research and Anthropology, and we worked under contracts for the Blackfeet people. And so we were just kind of the folks with the degrees while their archaeologists did the work they didn't have PhDs to get it past the BIA. So they, you know, my advisor has decades of experience and collaboration and is friends with folks at the tribal historic preservation office. You know, naturally they're going to call her and hire her to do the work. Right. So like, that's another, when you're a good citizen and you actually truly care, then it, it takes a whole different universe. It's like a parallel economy, right? You're not putting out these open things and then screening resumes and all this stuff. Like, you know people who are skilled because they've worked on projects before and you're also not afraid of the whole like college degree elitism thing and you just hire people to do good work and they happen to live near the site right and they happen to be they happen to have the tools that you need so i feel like those are the 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 foundations right because then you know there's always the question of like well maybe i should actually go to college because i really do like this archaeology stuff and you know for native folks i'm not native but I've been on the reservation and I have native friends and stuff. Life ain't easy, dude. Uh, and convincing someone to go through school, it's freaking hard to get someone who comes from the place of where a lot of people grew up, you know, people who are native that live in cities, black folks, right? Go to college for four years for something like archaeology. It's really hard to convince someone to do that unless they get a taste and see what it's like. And then some people will be like, yeah, you know what? I'll do this for a few years. This is something I will go to college and I'll do this. And they're often less fortunate and, and may not be able to afford to do that either. Yeah, the, they may not be able to do that stuff. And that's where I think that just hiring folks who need work, right? When you're doing a project and there's a black neighborhood right nearby, there's black folks that need a job. Rather than waiting for, you know, your city to make a redevelopment bid or run a, you know, fiber optic line right through a black neighborhood, perhaps you should just learn, you know, the history of that area and connect with black people who live in that area. Elders people who are at churches, people at community clubs, restaurant owners, folks who are in the businesses that requires you to go to those neighborhoods to get out of your car, to not be afraid that you're white in the black neighborhood 
and be a normal human being and tell them what you do. Have those conversations long before the dozers come rolling through the black neighborhood, right? And then when you get a chance and you're working there, you just call your folks and say, hey, are there folks who want to do this job? Do you know folks who need a job? It's not permanent. It's only a few weeks. You know, tell them to call me. So when you were at the uh, Boise State University, you guys did that River Street archaeology project? I did that while I was at Arizona. Is that how that kind of played out, though? Like you you just involved the community right right from the beginning? Well, I mean, that one, and that's actually the reason why I'm in Boise right now. You know, that project, like being from Boise, there's like, I think, what, 3% people, Black people in the city now. And it's that's up from 0.03 when I was a person here. I mean, my brother and sisters and stuff in my family are the only Black folks that like, I ever had interaction with on a daily basis the whole time I lived in, in Idaho, you know, weekly I'd see other black folks at church, but other than that, like it was just us. So, uh, then the neighborhood and everything like that's known as the historically black neighborhood and it's been slated for, you know, development. I mean, the city of Boise and folks in this town, are just taking it down building by building. And that's even the case right now. It's been happening for 50 years. So, uh, you know, that thing was like, the heritage is vanishing. And uh, by the time I went for my PhD, I figured I had enough um, experience to try to do something. And the first idea was to do like a digital heritage thing to interview folks and to scan a bunch of records and try to do like a cultural anthropology PhD if I didn't get the uh, ability to do a dig. But then, you know, yeah, you're right. Working through people I knew at, at City Hall and other archaeologists and folks in town, I was able to get permission to excavate on some city property. And so that's how that all came together. Bill, if I could build upon that a bit more, when you wrote with us, mm-hmm. wrote to us, we we're talking about structural inequality. And here in BC, oh, yeah. BC we find that we can, it, it's tangible, we can see it in relationship to um, Indigenous folks here in the province. In BC, there are not the Black communities that were here in the beginning of the 20th century. They've been um, systematically dismantled. I'm thinking, for example, of Hogan's Alley community in downtown Vancouver, uh, which they ran a bypass through and just the community was scattered. And it was it was quite deliberate, of course. Um, and so in BC archaeology, there are very, very few people of color. And a lot of the time when BC archaeologists talk about inequality and structure, structural inequality in archaeology, the, the subtext is we're talking about Indigenous folks. And I wonder if you could kind of make the connection for us as like an educational opportunity for, for white people. Um, like, sure. Can you make that connection between Black experiences of structural inequality and relate it to Indigenous experiences of structural inequality that might like kind of make that connection for the white archaeologists that, that we work with and including us. I mean, I can make it as far as like the economics thing, but it's not the same as far as like cultural, right? Because no, of course. indigenous indigenous folks have been here forever and black people are just trying to figure out where we came from. Right. So, so there's that thing, you know, we don't, we're, there's never like a time where we have sovereignty over any kind of like, you know, political aspect in the United States. So, you know, when it comes to archaeology, we really look to indigenous archaeology to, to lead us and show us what Absolutely. to do because we don't, yeah, we don't really have a pathway like Native folks have been showing us for years and years. And, you know, Africa, there's a rich tradition of African-American history. 
and sociology in the United States, but not necessarily archaeology. And it's it's really kind of coming together in the last 20 years. So we're we are, well, maybe 30 years, but we are looking to indigenous folks who have been on this, and the, it does really shape our thought about you know how sites should be treated. You know, the inequality too is is like monetary and in political mm-hmm. because the white archaeologists a lot of times are completely lacking in like the the culture and the, the understanding and the the interpersonal relationships and like knowing what it's like to be part of a community and having that kind of contrarian questioning uh, a mindset that like you know people of color like you'll just say stuff and right away they'll just kind of be looking at you and you can already see that they they're they're like yeah that's not really that's not real <laughs> and so you could you could totally see that so the like questioning mindset the the kind of mindset that would be inquisitive and question the structure of society a lot of times you don't really end up seeing that kind of stuff from white archaeologists because they just they're not from that mm-hmm. and so there's real inequality in that like the creativity and the different perspectives if you look closely, a lot of times the the creative ideas and stuff like that that people are putting in archaeology these days is coming from trying to understand native people or trying to understand non-white people. If you look at a lot of the archaeology that's happening on, you know, a lot of uh, tribal European communities and archaeological cultures, you'll see a very old school kind of classical, um, you know, like materialist based approach that a lot of times isn't really asking those kind of complicated questions about worldview and how people in Europe would have thought about stuff 7,000 years ago. Like, you know, I was just in Denmark for six weeks and their museums are totally awesome, but you're missing that whole, like, what was it like to be European? What was it like to be live in what's now Denmark 10,000? Like what culturally are we seeing, but beyond just these artifacts, a lot of the museums, they don't really have any kind of investigation of that. So in archaeology, where our growth and learning comes from non-white people mm-hmm. and all archaeologists trying to figure that whole thing out. When it comes to the inequality, the access to the money and the resources to go to college is where that's where we run into all the problem, right? Because people of color, traditionally, if they make it all the way to college, they got it, they really have to choose a career that's going to end up financially benefiting them because it's taken a huge sacrifice for their families over generations to get to the point where one, you know, native or black person can go to college and finish. Like that's a major investment for a family. And for someone to choose something like archeology, span like it's really difficult, but for, you know, families with more resources, right? White families that have, you know, everybody has a degree and people own businesses and, you know, they, they had an IRA started for their children many years ago when they were babies and stuff like that. And they can fall back on, their families' couches and they have they have support and structure to help them through college. And they also have many examples, like it's not the same. And so that's where really the degree thing and the college thing is where we see difficulty like creating diversity in archaeology. And then college isn't really an inviting place for people of color. It's not an inviting place for scholars of color or students of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that idea of power restructuring, um, I was thinking about that. I was listening to one of the episodes of your CRM archaeology podcast last night. There was a panel discussion on diversity in archaeology. Mm-hmm. Man, was I bummed to hear the exact same. I'm always like, you know, I'm like, uh, maybe it's going to be, you know, maybe there's going to be different challenges. And maybe there's going to be models we can look for. I, I'm always hopeful that other people have got this a bit more dialed mm-hmm. than us here in 
in what feels like the the archaeological frontier lands at times. So um, the discussion was about prioritizing relationships and communications between archaeologists yeah. and the regulator. And how there's this constant, like you mentioned it a few minutes ago, but this this control of information. And we're finding this too, where our clients mm -hmm. are saying, no, you can't talk to the First Nations. You can't talk to the Indigenous communities. And so we're always trying to find workarounds and, you know, find those educational pieces and, and push back. Uh, it sounds like you guys yeah. are having uh, the, same, the same challenges. Yeah, but the other beautiful thing that I'm starting to see happen a lot more is people of color cultivating and curating their own cultural knowledge for their own perpetuity that is not for archaeologists to know mm -hmm. or for them to share with other people because it's something yeah. that we get to help ourselves know who we are on our own terms based on our understanding of the world. And it ain't for books and it's not for Hollywood. And, you know, indigenous folks definitely, you know, hiding that kind of stuff from anthropologists and archaeologists is a really critical piece but, you know, finding a way to curate that and to put that on to the next generation without, you know, that, that takes a whole community working together for the, the, you know, youth to learn that kind of cultural knowledge and to think it's precious and to keep it safe and all that stuff. It's, it can't happen on the Internet. It's not going to happen in books. It doesn't belong in museums or in CRM reports. But also, on the other hand, that needs to be a form of like advocacy and strength. And that's where I think that understanding historic preservation rules in the United States, like a lot of communities, but specifically communities of color really need to learn these laws in and out. And they need to build partnerships with CRM companies so that when it's time for stuff to happen and there, you know, our cultural sites are threatened, at least we get to hear about what happens before they destroy it. And in a best case scenario, pieces of it get saved and, you know, managed for the future. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that when you were saying, um, you know, the the findings, for example, from, you know, a really significant, like large scale Hohokam, for example, site and, and like after the contract ends, getting it on a website or something like that. Our concern always with, with that is that there's the idea of uh, confidential traditional use information and things like that, that we wouldn't want to inadvertently uh, share when it wasn't supposed to be shared. And something that we've been looking at, I don't know if um, folks might already be doing this, but we're right now exploring the idea of visual reporting. So instead of the expression mm. of our work being a 400 page technical report that is inaccessible in language as well as just access, yeah. uh, we've been looking at making uh, short films so that the the experience yeah. of our you know First Nations team members is captured, and then that's something that can be shown to descendant communities at like chief and council uh, in community meetings, so that the community from be can benefit from the work instead of it just being lost forever in in these technical reports. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's brilliant. Another thing that could definitely and I really feel like should happen is patenting. Uh, uh, patterns and symbols and stuff from different tribes and groups and stuff like that, because the United States entire culture is based on stealing cultural knowledge from other people and then turning it into a cool, funky fashion for people to just indiscriminately consume all around the world. So the things, the dances and the things that we invent and the stuff that we put on the internet and stuff like that should be the, you know, should be owned by uh, the people who create that stuff. And, you know, that gives a platform for us to ask for uh, redress if it's stolen, right? Like a lot of these patterns on ceramics and these, you know, things that are petroglyphs get put on 
you know, uh, outdoor clothing logos and, you know, people's whatever archaeology conference t-shirts and stuff like that. And, you know, black people invent these dances and stuff and do them on TikTok. And the next thing you know, somebody's making millions of dollars somewhere else on it. Totally. You know, that person's the first one who recorded it and documented it and put it on the internet. Like they created that media. That's, that's their kind of thing. And if anything, the TikTok platform should split revenues with the person who created it, right? Not, not someone else building their own YouTube channel. They get leveraged into their own like primetime TV show but not because they got famous. But not supported by IP yeah. laws, right? Like in terms of the structural inequality, like it's, it, that support isn't there at a fundamental like top-down level. Yeah, I know. And I mean, that's one of the things I've been looking at because the project that I'm working on with the Society of Black Archaeologists in the Caribbean, there's cultural knowledge that, you know, we're not going to put on the internet and everything, but I kind of actually want to know more about like how we can safeguard people's knowledge for the stuff we do put on there, right? Like we give uh, a tribute and and credit stuff, but then after I write the article, people are going to cite me, not the actual elder who told me that how do they get recognition for their cultural knowledge that they, you know, I was privileged to hear and I was given permission to write about how do they get, like, how do they get the citation in the future so that people recognize it wasn't me. I didn't do it. Thorny issues, my friends. (laughs) (laughs) Just digesting it. I mean, there's so much, Uh, like every day I'm just, I'm just convinced we're babies when it comes to, uh, these thoughts, like we're, we're considering them, we're trying to apply them within our business. We're we're pretty a- we're a pretty agile little company, which is a strength, I think, in this yeah. like political social climate. But it's it's just not always well received. So I'm always looking for like hacks and ways to Im- improve the discipline in in like an efficient way. But maybe it doesn't have to be efficient. Maybe it's going to be mm-hmm. longer term as well. But I find though, I mean, there's tons of models, right? Like I, I'm, I'm yeah. we're always telling our team, like we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's, there's a lot of models out there already. And one of the things that's pretty exciting, which you may or may not know in BC is UNDRIP has been adopted into law here, which is huge in the province of BC. So United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People has been adopted into uh, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. And that came from a call to action from our Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And that is something that has really, really driven us and that we point to as kind of like a roadmap for how how we can do things. But even though it's been adopted, it hasn't been actioned. And so yeah. we're all waiting. We're to waiting see to see that. Roll. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's really encouraging news. That's, I like that. What kind of models are there? Like what other models? All the models I can think of, they are like specific because they attacked a problem that was happening, right? So like one example I know uh, that I heard a scholar give a presentation about is about one specific tribe in New Zealand, what's now called New Zealand. I can't pronounce its uh, indigenous name, but they are 3D modeling these artifacts that have been at museums so that they can leave the model at the museum and mm-hmm. reclaim the building and the other stuff back to their group. So those things can be repatriated back, right? So, you know, obviously it took a long time and they're, and they're also inventorying a lot of these things in their own special a tribal inventory of cultural resources and cultural things, not for archaeologists to know, just for them to know where it's at so that when something happens, they can go, nope, you can't go there. Doesn't matter why. You cannot. We know why. You, we, you don't need to know why. Uh, you know, another thing too is like, uh, 
just the kind of beginning bubblings of an idea of trying to inventory African-American uh, human remains at museums. Mm-hmm. Like only in the last few months has it been kind of like, yeah, you know, wait a minute, how many skeletons are there and where are they at? Are they at historically black colleges or are they just, you know, kind of at the university of California? Like, you know, and also are they individuals who donated their bodies to science or these things that they forced enslaved people to dig up from slave cemeteries so that people who are physicians back in the 1700s could just see a body and cut it all up. Right. Like also we're starting to realize that a lot of these universities excavated African-American remains. don't even know where they're at. It's been 200 years. They have no idea where those remains are at. They have no inventory and no nothing. Like they don't know. We're not even talking about repatriation. There is no black nation to repatriate though. We're U S citizens. They are where they belong. But uh, just knowing what happened to our ancestors and how those human remains are being used or misused, we don't even know that. Yeah. Uh, so that's another example of like a community trying to solve an issue, like realizing, you know, we don't even know where many of our ancestors are at. Like our cemeteries are getting bulldozed. We don't know where our people are. Crazy to think that. Yeah. So there's a new act that's going through Congress. It should be signed once they realize they have pens and can do work. It's a African-American cemeteries inventory that provides technical, uh, some money, but also technical skill to collaborate with black communities all over the United States to document African-American cemeteries. It looks like it's going to pass. It passed. It was making its way through the house during the Trump uh, administration with kind of no real objection. So it should be law pretty soon. And then, you know, we can start even just looking to see how many burial grounds did we even have ever in the United States and and how can we keep them from getting bulldozed? Mm -hmm. And are they marked or unmarked grounds? Yeah. I I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of uh, plantations in certain parts of the United States. Who knows how many hundreds of bodies are on there, black, white, or otherwise. Uh, They're just not marked. It's been hundreds of years since anyone thought about those people, you know? So you know, that's part of it, remembering our ancestors so that their memories don't die. Well, we don't even know where to go to venerate them. That's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's also a positive thing that we could put that thing through and that it would be in this, you know, crazy town United States that I live in and that that would be a law that it's kind of like, yeah, you know, okay, well, it's, it's going to take a long time to get through Congress, but right on. I mean, we should know where cemeteries are. At least we haven't lost that much humanity yet. Yeah, absolutely. We had a lot of African-Americans who came up to um, British Columbia um, during the Second World War to help build the the Mile Zero Highway. And they came up and I think they were forced to come up and work. They were just like the stories I heard was the when people died, their bodies were just thrown underneath the the pavement, part of the highway. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true. Wow. Yeah, because I mean that that puts a whole new thing, right? Like a whole new level to that road. Yeah, yeah, and that's not something that uh, people really talk about when they celebrate the construction of that highway. And it's a major highway. It's the only well, it's there's only mm. two highways that take you north in in BC, and that's one of them. Mm. Wow! Hmm. Just we I hear guess. all these incredible stories. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So the Society of Black Archaeologists, you were one of the founders. Yes. How did yeah. that come about? Yeah, you know, uh, you know, of course, all of the things we ever do come from the leadership of other elders. But 
you know, there's a group of uh, black archaeologists in the Society uh, for Historical Archaeology that for the longest time had been pushing for the organization to become an anti-racist institution and really evaluating the way that archaeologists were treating black sites in the United States. And I mean, we're talking like the 90s, people were, you know, uh, working on this stuff. And it really kind of came to a head during the African Burial Ground Project in New York City influential folks kind of critiquing the way that CRM and archaeology was treating, you know, black cemeteries. Uh, and so they had been pushing for a long time, but never, there wasn't like enough of us. Right. And it's much easier to just stay the course you're already on, which is what the SHA and many other organizations were doing. However, I feel like the SHA, because of this sustained activism from this vocal, uh, really an influential group of African-American archaeologists, that really has kind of pushed things forward to make a critical mass where something like the Society of Black Archaeologists could happen. But my colleagues, uh, Ayanna Flewellen and Justin Nunavant, were, you know, college students and then historical archaeologists. And they just kind of realized, like, well, why isn't there a, you know, there's a Society for Black Anthropologists and Black Historians. Like, how come there's not one for archaeologists? And so they started their own uh, organization and it's been growing for quite a few years now. And I was one of the first, I was kind of like, yeah, if you're crazy enough to start an organization, I'll join it. <laughs> I'm crazy enough to follow. I don't know how good of a leader I am, but it's been working with the Society for Historical Archaeology. You know, we have finished college and got, at the time I was doing CRM, moving into our careers and just trying to create, you know, one of the things that was realized is that it's a really lonely place to be in archaeology for anyone. But it can be really, really lonely if you're of color because you're always in these places where you're the only person that's there and like it's you it's literally worn on your skin. So every single person in the room all immediately sees that. And, you know, in the United States, we're all, uh, you know, acculturated to see race. So we do. And, uh, you know, it plays out in ways that aren't really comfortable for people of color. So one of the best things about the Society of Black Archaeologists is that we're really kind of supporting all the people, right? So it's not only just black people join. It is archaeologists, but, mm -hmm. you know, there's, you know, white folks. It's open to anyone who is interested in joining and interested in, you know, listening to like our platform. And our, you know, we're working from an anti-racist point of view. We're working from an anti-harassment, pro-equality, you know, uh, pro-opportunity, and then pro-supporting each other. Like we're, we're for helping each other through this difficult time. Yeah. We want, we want to help things change. We, we definitely don't know the answers, but we want to be uh, a resource and we want to be, we're okay to model ourselves as white folks grappling with these issues in real time. Yeah. And we want to decenter how, how white people feel about white problems. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and kind of situated a, a bit bigger. And so instead of asking people of color to continue to educate us and do the labor of educating us, we want to uh, set out and kind of educate ourselves. And so if we can ever help by pushing the needle in the conversation, that's, that's our aim. The uh, Indigenous Archaeology Collective, folks like you podcasting, students who are, you know, building these grassroots, you know, the fact that we're even thinking about our mental health ever, right? That stuff is the future. And everyone who defends the old way is eventually just going to end up like the mammoths, right? We don't have any mammoths anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I have a picture on my wall that says the young people will win. <laughs> yeah. And they will, right? We just have to get out of the way. Yeah. 
Well, thank you, Bill. We'll have to yeah. have to wrap it there and, and let's con okay. continue it. Um, thank you so much for reaching out to us and for being so generous in your time. Okay. Thank you very much. Take care. Hey folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Dig This. If you have any questions or there is something you'd like us to dig into, reach out online. You can find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dig This Pod. If you dig us, leave us a review and tune in next week for a new episode.